I don't know, some of you probably won't be shocked by this, uh, but the last Marvel movie I saw in its entirety was the first Iron Man. Uh, I've not seen any since, so I have no idea what's going on uh, with Avengers Endgame. But I do have hope that one day I will catch up because in the fall, Disney's going to have a streaming service available and all of the Marvel movies will exist in one place that we know our family will subscribe to because we need Disney Junior to help raise our children. And there's no shame in saying that. It's amazing what you can get done when your kids will watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. But having seen none of those, it's still rather impressive that in its first roughly two weeks of being released in the world that Avengers Endgame over the past week surpassed Titanic as the second biggest grossing film of all time at the global or international box office. It now only trails Avatar and it more than likely will overtake Avatar. But here's one of the reasons why I believe Avengers Endgame had such broad appeal. Its success is largely due to the fact that it is the culmination of a decade's worth of storytelling that now spans 22 movies and counting, not to mention the various TV shows and other things that give meaning to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And if you've been around people who are fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they all understand how all of the various people and places and locations fit together, and they also understand the various symbols and artifacts that help to tell the larger story that all of the characters are caught up in. And I think that's one of the broad appeals of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is it tells a bigger story than just one single superhero's rise, fall, rise again, however you, wanna, however you prefer your superhero stories to be told. And in much the same way, tonight as we begin to work through the actual scriptures in the Gospel of Mark, it opens by reminding both the original audience and us of the people, the places, the locations, and the symbols that all pointed towards the promised Messiah, Jesus, who we will meet as the story of Mark's gospel unfolds. Now, the history here doesn't span decades. It spans centuries. And we see throughout each century and throughout time from the beginning through this moment where Jesus appears that God has sovereignly orchestrated, or you could say directed, everything to be in the right place for the ministry and the mission of his son let's pray father we are grateful that you sent your son jesus for us and we're grateful that you gave us the scriptures to help us better understand who jesus is and what jesus came to accomplish and so father we want to be people who love your word well who honor and esteem your word but we want to use your word to better understand you the God that it reveals we want to love scripture but we want to have a deep abiding affection for you the God of the scriptures and so tonight as we begin to work through Mark and his gospel account would you use the coming weeks not just to give us a firm foundation for our confidence in the gospel from scripture. But would you use the coming weeks to reveal more and more of your fatherly heart to us? A heart that would be bent on redemption to the point of sending your one and only son. 
Father, will we know you better? Will we love Christ more at the end of our time together tonight? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This is what Mark writes in the first 13 verses of his gospel account. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Last week, as we were unpacking how and why Mark wrote his gospel, we, wrote, we, we talked about Mark was writing to show that Christianity wasn't a new religion, even though it was largely and widely rejected by the Jews. Rather, those who followed Christ followed the one who was the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. As the NIV Study Bible says, Mark grounds both the gospel and its rejection in Israel's own scriptural tradition, showing his story's continuity with God's previous promises and Israel's persistent rebellion. Therefore, it should come as no surprise to us that Mark opens with eight verses where he shows the ministry of John the Baptist as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and a continuation of the prophetic tradition of Israel. Mark opens in verses 2 and 3 by quoting from both Malachi and Isaiah. Now, in your Bibles, it says in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. And then he quotes Malachi and Isaiah. Maybe you're wondering, like, well, is he confused? In the New Testament era, when you were writing, if you were going to quote multiple sources in one quote, you would say that the entire quote belonged to the most prominent figure of whoever you were quoting. So he quotes Malachi and Isaiah, but he's going to say it's Isaiah because Isaiah is the most prominent voice being referenced. But he references Malachi and Isaiah as a means to show that John's ministry while unique and unorthodox from the present temple sacrificial system, was indeed valid and it actually fulfilled what God had said must take place before the long-awaited Messiah came. Now, if you were to go back, he quotes Malachi first, and he quotes Malachi 3.1, and if you were to go back and read all of Malachi 3, what you see is that this prophecy focused on God's messenger, who we find out is John, preparing the people by calling them to repent and purify themselves before the Lord, the very presence of God himself, paid the people of God a visit. 
Now, if the people of God refuse the call of the prophet in the wilderness, if they won't repent and believe, then they will find the visit from the Lord a means of devastation, not deliverance. Therefore, John's baptism of those confessing their sins pushes redemptive history one step closer to the arrival of the Messiah. However, it is Mark's quote from Isaiah, Isaiah being the most influential Old Testament prophetic work in both the New Testament and in Mark in particular, supplies the context for how we are to read and understand the rest of Mark's gospel. Mark, throughout his book, is going to either quote directly from or allude to imagery from Isaiah's prophetic work. And so it's very pronounced in Mark, and it is the most profound Old Testament work to be referenced in the New Testament. Isaiah 40, which is where Mark's quote in verse 3 comes from, is where the beginning of the promise of a comforter for God's people begins. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, much like the first 39 books of the Old Testament, tell of the fall of God's people and the promised punishment for their rebellion through punishment and exile. And it is the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, much like the last 27 books of the New Testament, that tell of the story, that offer the glimmer of hope that God will visit his people with a redeemer, a one who will lead them out of exile and back into the promised land. The NIV study Bible says regarding these first three verses of Mark, they locate Jesus' mission and message in the context of Isaiah's great hope of a new exodus from exile. And so if you want to better understand Mark as we unpack Mark over the coming 35 plus weeks, I would encourage you to work into your daily Bible reading some time in Isaiah to read and get a feel for what Isaiah prophesied, how Isaiah talked about the sure punishment of God and also the sure rescue of God for his people. And if you can read and begin to piece together the flow of Isaiah, you'll understand better what Mark is trying to accomplish in his gospel. And so he opens not only by quoting these prophets to show that John's ministry is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but he actually, being John, continues in the line of prophets used by God to prepare Israel for the arrival of the Messiah. John is the last in the line of Old Testament prophets who were sent by God to both warn the people of God of coming punishment for their persistent rebellion and disobedience. But the prophets were also used to stir in the people hope that God would not stay angry forever, but that God would visit his people and in grace and mercy rescue and redeem them. And so John continues in that line. He is, you could say, the last of the Old Testament prophets as his prophecy gives way to the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus. Most of those who currently served in the temple at the time of John's ministry were well off. They wore nice clothes and most ate the finest of foods. Now, if you remember back, whether you listened online or you were here last week, we talked about the Sadducees 
were the small ruling class of Jews who were closely connected to Rome, who ruled, who had control over the priesthood during the time of John and Jesus' ministry in and around Jerusalem. And because of their close proximity to Roman power, the priests of the temple at that time were well-clothed, well-fed, well-connected individuals. And all of a sudden, out in the countryside, out in the wilderness, you have what appears to be a crazy man preaching about repentance and confession and offering to baptize people in the River Jordan for the forgiveness of their sins. Let's be honest. If we were here meeting and somebody came breathlessly in the door in the next five minutes and said, hey, there's a guy out in Castlehane and he's near the river and he's baptizing people in the Cape Fear River and he's wearing like animal outfit and he's eating whatever he can find along the riverbanks, we would not be like, oh, that's probably a prophet from God. Let's go check out what he's doing. We'd probably like, maybe we should call the police and have him arrested. John's ministry, like we, we just read this and we're so familiar with it, we're so comfortable with it that we're like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, John's here. John's ministry is not in line with how the current temple sacrificial system is set up and running. John is like a hard right, but John is preparing the people for the arrival of Jesus. John's dress very different from what those in the temple were wearing, was actually in line with the prophets of Israel's past, particularly Elijah. 2 Kings 1.8 recounts the servants of King Ahaziah bringing word of their encounter with Elijah. And this is what the king's servants say when he asks who they've encountered. They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he, being King Ahaziah, said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. So apparently, one of the common ways for Old Testament prophets to dress was in animal skins with leather belts, and they just kind of wandered around from town to town, from city to city, prophesying and doing the work of the ministry that God had given them. And so even John's dress, not only do we have the prophetic uh, confirmation of John's ministry, even John's dress confirms him in the role of prophet. This is important because, remember, Mark is writing to ground everything we're going to hear and learn about Jesus in Israel's past. Everything we are to understand about Jesus and his ministry is to be a direct outflow of what Israel's own scriptures said about God's coming to visit his people. The NIV Study Bible further explains John's rough attire and clean desert food mark him as one living apart from an impure and self-indulgent Israel. John's life and ministry from this point on was always in conflict with those in power and served as a precursor or a foreshadowing to the conflict in Jesus' own life and ministry with those in power. And so when Mark opens with eight verses walking us through the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, he is working very hard in a very short economy of words to show us clearly that John, not only John, but Jesus are both direct fulfillments of the Old Testament scriptures. 
And it's that quote from the NIV study Bible that I think gives us our first insight into the text tonight for us. It says, John's rough attire and clean desert food mark him as one living apart from an impure and a self-indulgent Israel. And I think for us, the challenge is this. At a certain point, following Jesus puts us at odds on one side with the culture at large that has no interest in the gospel or in the ways of Jesus. And so on one end, we stand in stark contrast to those who have no desire for Jesus. But on the other end, if we really seek to follow Jesus, it's eventually going to put us at odds with those who want to claim Christ but have no desire to follow him. Following Jesus should always be about sharpening the edges in our life where our desire to live as Jesus commands us to live and as God commands us to live puts us in a sharper relief against both sides of an unbelieving coin. Both those who have no desire for the things of God and those who claim Christ in name only but have no evidence of a transformed heart or desire to please God. And if we're honest, this is, this is where most of us begin to pull back from a full-fledged devotion to Jesus. When we begin to realize just how awkward it may make our life, when we begin to realize just how sharp and distinct those lines around what faithful discipleship looks like, obeying God in all times, at all places, through the Spirit's power to the best of our ability, when we begin to realize how that begins to make us stand out, we begin to look for ways to fit right back in. But John stands out in the wilderness, day after day, faithfully proclaiming the message that God has given him. People come out, they hear and they baptize, they're baptized. And then what does John do? Does John take the glory for himself? Does John work to build a platform for himself? No. John just says there's another one coming. He's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. And I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are called to do day in and day out is to live our lives faithfully committed to how God has called us to live as believers here in Wilmington in the year 2019. And with our life and with our words, we are to constantly be saying, I live not for myself, but for one who is greater than I am. One who in grace has saved me. One who in mercy has given me his spirit. One who I give my life in worship for. But that means often standing out when we would rather just fit in. And so John stands not only to call out the people of Jerusalem and Judea to be baptized for the confession and repentance of their sins, but he also stands as a call for us to not lose heart when standing for God puts us at odds with either the culture at large or with those who would claim Christ by name only. 
And then in 9 through 13, John, Mark does something very interesting. Now, if you were tasked with telling the story of Jesus' life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, what key event from Israel's past would you try to tie Jesus to for the sake of validating his ministry? What is the penultimate moment in the nation of Israel's history? I mean, you can answer. It's the Exodus. And so what Mark does in Mark 1, 9 through 13, as he tells the story of Jesus' baptism, what he's also doing is he's telling us the story of Exodus Again, except this time it will be Jesus, the true and better Moses, who will lead his people out of bondage, not to a foreign ruling power, but out of bondage to Satan, sin, and death. And so in Mark 1, 9 through 13, I want to read it, and then we're just going to briefly unpack it. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now let's unpack all of the symbolism and all of the imagery and all of the meaning in these few verses from the first chapter of Mark. And you'll see how Mark is retelling the story of the Exodus with Jesus as the one who will lead the new Exodus. First, the setting of the wilderness where John's ministry is taking place and where Jesus comes out to meet John was a vivid reminder to the Jewish people of where they first became God's people. God hears the cry of the Hebrew people as they are in bondage and in slavery to Pharaoh. And God sends Moses and through the ten plagues, the people of Israel are freed and they are marched out. And it's when they come to the wilderness and they're at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 that we have recorded where God meets with Moses. And here are God's words from Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now here is God in human flesh. Although that fact is hidden from those standing on the banks of the Jordan River in the moment listening to John preach and baptize. But here is God in the flesh come to save his people and reconstitute the true Israel, the church, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so the wilderness is the stage where if you were an Israelite and you begin to piece together the imagery and the meaning of the wilderness you would go, this is where God first called us his people. And it's in the wilderness that we first hear of God from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Not only did the wilderness evoke memories of their past, but Jesus going down and passing through the waters of baptism stirred remembrances of God leading his people through the waters of the Red Sea on dry ground 
Exodus 14, 21 through 22 and 29 says this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And then skipping down to verse 29, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now here in Jesus is God in human flesh identifying with his people and passing through the waters of baptism, thereby showing them that he will be the one to save them. And so you have the wilderness setting where God first called Israel his people. You have Jesus in the wilderness and the voice saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You have Jesus going down into the water and passing through the waters of baptism, identifying with his people, not because there was sin in Jesus' life, but as a means of showing that he would be the one to rescue them. He will lead them not through any particular body of water on dry ground, but he will lead them through the veil of death and into the promised land and the rest of God's presence forever. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, heaven opens and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Again, Mark is drawing from the rich symbolism of Isaiah to help those who first heard or read his gospel connect the dots to who Jesus is, namely the one to fulfill the scriptures of Israel. Isaiah 63, 11 through 12, references God giving the Spirit after the Israelites are led through the Red Sea. This is what Isaiah 63, 11 and 12 says. Then he, meaning God, remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? And so Isaiah says when the people of Israel were led through the Red Sea on dry ground, that it was then God who put the Spirit in the midst of them. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open, and the Spirit, like a dove, descends on Jesus. And it's later in this same prayer from Isaiah 63 it stretches from 63-7 through the end of 64. But at the beginning of chapter 64, this is what Isaiah says. All that you would rend the heavens and come down. Or all that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And what happens when Jesus comes up out of the water? Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Do you see the pains Mark is going through to connect every bit of Jesus' life and ministry to the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures and i want to i wanted to walk us through this tonight because i want us to feel comfortable in understanding and knowing that the god of the old testament and the god of the new testament are not two separate deities there's not the angry god of the old testament who is then supplanted or usurped by this loving kind gracious jesus in the new testament jesus is the same god of the old testament and the father who we primarily see at work in the old testament is the same god at work in 
the New Testament. Mark wanted his original hearers and readers to see and understand that. And it's something that we have to see and understand because there is always a culture of pushback where people say, how can you worship a God like the God of the Old Testament? And we would say, easy, because the God of the Old Testament is the same God you see at work in the New Testament. And if you can follow the storyline throughout, you see that God, while just and holy and righteous and willing to defend his holiness through punishment, is also gracious and loving and merciful and was always moving to make a way to redeem his people. But we need to be people of the word who can walk people through both the Old and the New Testaments to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament pointed to. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the dove descends, the voice of God speaks, confirming the ministry of Jesus, God's son. And it's here where we see the dove coming down that the NIV study Bible helps us understand what's going on when it says, the spirit indwelt Jesus will embody what Israel was always intended to be. Jesus comes up out of the water The heavens open, the dove descends, the Father speaks his blessing over the ministry that he has sent the Son to do. And when you see the dove, the traditional symbol for Israel, descending on Jesus, you see in that moment the confirmation that Jesus will be in his single person and in his life and ministry. He will be who Israel was always intended to be, but their sinfulness kept them from being. He will be the one who will live a life in every respect pleasing to God. And he will die a death so that those of us who could never live a life pleasing to God can be restored and redeemed and brought back to our loving Father. And lastly, in 12 and 13, we see Jesus led further into the wilderness by the Spirit where he endures 40 days of continual testing and temptation. Here, unlike the Israelites in their 40 years of wilderness wandering, Jesus will at no point try to overthrow God's claim on his life and betray his divine sonship. Rather, he will walk in full faithful obedience all of his life. Mark mentions, and it seems rather odd, that Jesus was with the wild animals. It's like Jesus went out and he was tempted for 40 days and then he opened a petting zoo. It's like, Mark, why, why the mention of wild animals? Luke in his recounting and Matthew in his recounting of this same period of temptation, they include the fact that angels ministered to Jesus. Mark is unique in alluding to or telling us that there were wild animals present. And so what's the deal, Mark? What are you after with us? I told you Mark loved Isaiah, and I'm hopeful by the end of our study of Mark, you love Isaiah as much as Mark loved Isaiah. But what he's alluding to is another of Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah. It actually, alongside of Isaiah 63, 7 through 64, 12, Isaiah 11 and the prophecy of the reign of the righteous branch is going to serve as a key interpretive Old Testament text, not only for Mark 1, 1 through 13, but for the rest of our time in Mark's gospel. 
And it's in Isaiah eleven six through 9 that the prophet says this, concerning the one who will rule as the righteous branch from the stump of Jesse and the tree of David. This is one of the things that will mark his ministry. The wolf shall, lie with the, so shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Mark mentions wild animals because this was another mark of the ministry of the Messiah. That the wild animals, when the righteous branch reigns, the wild animals don't even have the desire to kill one another. So Jesus is in the wilderness and he's with the wild animals. But even in that brief 40-day stretch, there is a foretaste of what is to come. When all striving and all death and all warring will be put to an end. And so Mark opens in these 13 verses by saying essentially, here is the Messiah. Now what are you going to do with him? And over the next 15 and a half chapters, we're going to be challenged to answer that question for ourselves. Here is the Messiah. What are you going to do with him? Anybody in here ever reshingled a roof? Show of hands, anybody, nobody, somebody? Anybody stood on the ground and caught shingles? Some people threw shingles off the roof. Hey, we got one. All right, good. Here is the key tenet of roofing, as I remember it from times on mission trips. Your first line that you set on that roof, where you're going to put the first run of shingles down, that line has to be straight. If the first line isn't straight, you get to the peak of a roof and you've turned someone's nice home into an optical illusion. It looks like a wave pool rolling through their roof. So not only do you have to make sure the first line is straight, but at every point that you are working to put shingles on a roof, you reset the line and you remark a straight line. If you don't, you run the risk of really messing up the roof that you're working on, whether it's your own or someone else's. And in much the same way, we should be periodically stopping to examine who is the Jesus we worship. Scripture sets the plumb line for who God is and how God operates and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And at some point, if you're here and you're a believer, you heard, you trusted, and you believed. The first line of your life was marked straight. But if you're not periodically checking to see that you're still following the Jesus as he's given to us in the scriptures and you're living your life as scripture commands, if you don't stop and assess where you are, 
You can make a ruin of your own life even as you seek to follow Christ. And so what you're going to see in Mark is an invitation over and over and over again to ask yourself, am I really following Jesus? Because here's a sneaking suspicion I have, and I've had to work through this in getting ready for tonight and in getting ready for this walk through the book of Mark. More often than not, I find myself praying to and worshiping a hybrid Jesus who is part scripture, part my own making, partly a God who makes me comfortable. And so here, here's where I want to wind our time up tonight. When we walk through the Gospel of Mark, Mark is going to confront head-on three large southern idols that kind of prop up life and culture in the Bible Belt South. And I'm indebted to James Walden, the pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, for these three idols. But you're going to see them, and we're going to walk through them. And the first idol that even the first 13 verses of Mark addresses is this. It confronts the idol of southern hospitality. And you may be thinking, wait, what? Like, we're known for our southern, outside of our ridiculous accents and delicious sweet tea, the third thing we're most known for, maybe first, is southern hospitality, right? But this idea of southern hospitality as an idol in the Bible Belt South is a hospitality that finds in its practice a distinct desire to keep us separated from whoever we deem to be the other. Far from biblical hospitality, southern hospitality doesn't seek to include the outsider. Southern hospitality seeks to exclude the outsider. Southern hospitality seeks to firm up the clear definitions of who's in and who's out. Think about how we talk about salvation in the South. I invite Jesus in. I'm going to be hospitable to Jesus. What we do when we say that and how this plays out, and you're going to see it over and over and over again as we work through Mark, is this. When we think that we are the one inviting Jesus into our life, we think we can control who else gets to come in. We think we have control over if we need to ask Jesus to leave. Southern hospitality as an idol will be confronted over and over and over again in Mark because here's the truth about who Jesus is, and this is where we've got to start with it tonight. Jesus is so totally other than us. He's so totally different from us that most of us have severe angst about actually encountering the Jesus that we find in the Scripture. There's something unnerving about how much other than us he is that causes us to keep him at an arm's length. What Mark says is, and here he is, and he's not waiting for you to invite him in, but he will invite you into his story. He will invite you into his life. 
He will invite you into a place where there is room for the people that you think don't deserve to be in. Amen. We see Jesus prophesied as the Lord come to visit and judge his people. We see Jesus as a suffering servant who will win victory through weakness, and we really just aren't sure what to do with him. So we try to figure out and game the system to know what is just enough to keep him satisfied and keep us separated from the true otherness of Jesus. As we work through Mark, we're going to have an invitation to weekly hold out and examine the Jesus our minds conceive of, test him against the scriptures, and be brought to confession and repentance over the ways in which we turn Jesus into an idol meant to serve us rather than trusting Jesus to be the Savior and Redeemer of our hearts and our lives. And so Mark says, here he is. What are you going to do with him? And that's the question we've got to start answering tonight. Here Jesus is. What are we going to do with him? Let's pray.